Today's workplace podcast disclaimer, JT Wilson. This podcast is intended to provide general information about various recent developments in employment law and human resources best practices. Nothing in this presentation or in the comments of Ms. Johnson, Ms. Shannon, or any guest should be considered as the rendering of legal or other professional advice, and it is not directed at any specific cases or circumstances. Listeners are responsible for obtaining the necessary advice about their specific situations from their own counsel. These materials are intended for educational and informational purposes only. The presentation and these materials represent the opinions of the participants and not those of their law firms or companies. No part of these materials may be printed, photocopied, or otherwise reproduced, recorded, or stored, or transmitted in any form and by any means, electronic, mechanical, or otherwise, without the prior written permission of today's workplace podcast. Welcome to today's workplace, a podcast created to keep employers current on the latest employment law trends while providing proactive solutions to the everyday issues arising in today's rapidly changing workplace. Is your business prepared for today's workplace? Let's find out with your hosts, Barbara Johnson and Belinda Reed Shannon. Recent events ignited by the murder of George Floyd at the hand of a Minneapolis police officer and an explosion of outrage throughout the country has brought tens of thousands of Americans to protest the racism and white supremacy underlying numerous killings of Black Americans in recent years. We've also seen a backlash to the outrage over the George Floyd murder through an uprising of open pronouncements by white supremacists. In the aftermath of the killing of George Floyd, many companies have reacted with statements and with town halls. Having been so vocal on the issue, However, there is now pressure on the business community to follow up with real action, not least because consumers and employees have high expectations. Today, we are so fortunate to have Donna Hughes and Ashley Ridgeway Washington to join us again to discuss how their organizations have responded after the murder of George Floyd and the proactive steps that are planned to address diversity, equity, and inclusion. Welcome, Ashley and Donna. I'd like us to begin this conversation with uh, learning a little bit more about your organization from the standpoint of telling us what the racial and ethnic demographics are of your organization, if you can share that. And let us know if there's any unique challenges with respect to diversity, equity, and inclusion. So uh, Emblem Health Family Companies, we're an enterprise of different uh, brands uh, in different locations. Uh, Emblem Health, our parent, is uh, in uh, Manhattan, um, downtown Manhattan. And we have medical sites through our provider affiliate, Advantage Care Physicians, throughout uh, the various boroughs. There's 40 different sites. We also have a location in Connecticut and, um, and operations up through New England. Um, our commitment uh, to diversity in the organization um, has stated um, uh, for the last several years, we are as diverse as the communities we serve. And, and that is in fact um, very true. 
Um, and um, and happy to to say that we are a nonprofit and we focus on serving our uh, communities and meeting them in their needs and expectations. And that also includes cultural competency, that includes um, linguistics, that includes being familiar with customs and practices when we approach potential uh, members in the community, when we speak with them on the telephone, and certainly when we render healthcare in our medical sites. And so uh, the demographics um, of our employee base are important to ensuring that we have the right things in mind when we're serving our members and patients. How about you, Ashley? Sure, so Chris's Health employs about 45,000 associates, um, both domestically and internationally, primarily in Texas, Louisiana, Arkansas, New Mexico, and then on the international side, Chile, um, Colombia, and Mexico. And so I, I would say that we have a demonstrated commitment to diversity and inclusion um, as our heritage dictates. So our sisters were a founding congregation of immigrants, in fact, they came from Italy. And when they came to initially Galveston, Texas, one of our, our initial uh, first sponsoring congregations, they came to render care to those who needed it without regard to what their racial makeup were. And in fact, um, there was a time in Texas that they were told specifically, it is illegal for you to treat minorities. And they said, well, go ahead and do whatever it is you do to people who break the law. Mm -hmm. because we are not dissuaded by what you're saying. We've been charged by God to care for those who need care. And so I feel very strongly in saying that, you know, our um, employee um, mix really reflects those who we serve. Now, I will also say that we are in rural communities. And so we have to be continue to be vigilant and intentional about ensuring that we are creating good pipelines to leadership and that we are retaining diverse talent. Um, and so we have um, established some pretty substantive um, initiatives to ensure that we that stays top of mind in our um, human capital strategy. Now, as Black females and leaders of human resources organizations within your company, what was your reaction to the murder of George Floyd? How did it impact you personally? Well, um, yeah. I am a mother of a Black male, and uh, he just turned 19. And um, I, I have to say that initially my reaction, I think, was experiencing uh, the stages of grief, you know, profound sadness, profound upset, um, watching that video um, uh, evoked all sorts of concern and emotions um, that it wasn't the first time, that it hasn't been the last time. Um, but to actually see, you know, eight minutes plus how many seconds um, of a murder is, um, is, is an impact that you won't soon forget. That's how I felt personally. As a senior human resource professional, I felt certain uh, that the impact in the cities, in the country, in the world, 
would reach our workplace, that it was just a given and that we needed to, you know, mobilize to figure out how we were going to react to um, what was, you know, natural inclination, people to be upset, to be confused, to be concerned and not assume that it was going to stay outside of the workplace and assume that, that people were going to bring it into the workplace just because um, it was heavy on, on their hearts and heavy in their experience. Uh, you know, remember that, that we were still, as we still are, going through COVID-19 and, uh, and uh, it disproportionately impacting black and brown communities. And then our, uh, you know, medical sites are in the various boroughs of New York City. And when the protests started, we were having protests, um, you know, outside of several of our sites. In fact, we had to close a couple of our sites early um, just to ensure, you know, that our people got home safe. So it was definitely something that as a, a people leader uh, had to immediately consider you know, how would we be supportive? So I'll be really transparent. When I first heard about it, because I didn't watch it initially, I was not prepared mentally to watch it. Uh, I was frustrated because for many of the people on this podcast today, this is not a new narrative, right? This is a narrative we've seen played out most of our lives. Um, and so from that perspective, um, I was like, this is another one of those things that makes us hold our sons a little tighter at night. And then my daughter, who is 18 and a freshman in, at an HBCU, played it, and I watched it. And at that point, I was mad as hell. That's the truth. I was not in a space where I could be the professional Juris Doctorate Ashley that you see before you today, I was just one mad black woman. And in fact, I could not even discuss it at work the next day. Um, and a colleague of mine reached out to me and said, did anybody mention it on the call? And I said, no one did. And they said, I can't believe you did. And I said, and I wasn't in a place to be able to do that yet. So then the next day, I took some time for reflection, and I will tell you something happened that really shifted my thoughts about this. Um, at this point in time, we were in early May. The, our, we have a community pool. Of course, it wasn't open because of COVID, and we bought our son one of those large blue pools that goes in the backyard. So he was in the pool. We'd blown it up for the first time. He's eight, and he was having a wonderful time. And as I was sitting on my deck watching him, I heard him reciting my phone number over and over. And I said, Ace, what are you doing? And he said, oh, I'm, I'm making sure I can remember your phone number. And I said, well, you know my phone number. What, what's going on? He said, well, I want to make sure that I have your number in my mind. So if I ever get lost in my neighborhood, I can stop somebody and ask them to use your, their phone and let them know that I live here, I belong in this neighborhood, and to call my lawyer mom. Mm, mm, mm. Wow. So yeah. after I went and sent my daughter out in the house and went in the house and boohooed, mm -hmm. I said, how dare you be so angry that you not use your platform at your job to advance this cause because 
your son is growing up and he deserves better when he's 18 than he has today. And it brings tears to my eyes when I talk about it now. But then the next day, I got together with some colleagues, reached out to diversity and inclusion stakeholder and said, hey, what's the plan? You know, our CEO had already been thinking about it. He'd already issued a statement. And so then we had to work to put feet to that statement. And I'm proud of the work we've done. But I will tell you, it continues to be a journey. It continues to be a journey to partner with leaders to help them to understand how to respond thoughtfully. It continues to be a journey to address those who don't think there's a problem and help them to understand the value add associated with, you know, really committing investment, investing resources and time in this work. Yeah, I mean, I appreciate the both of you sharing uh, your stories as it relates to how it impacted you directly, but we all have a common uh, theme in our family life because we all have young black African-American boys that we're raising uh, mine the same age uh, range as Donna's son. And I will tell you, I had my reaction, but I had to quickly be prepared to help him with his reaction because he was devastated. He was crying. He wanted to know why do they want to kill us? Mm -hmm. So he personalized that, that very much. And And I will say, you know, that it really got me actively involved and engaged in conversations with organizations about how they now add a social justice platform mm-hmm. onto their already established uh, DE&I initiatives. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. So with that, I, I want to ask you, once you brought it, either brought it to the organization or the organization brought it to you, what were they saying? And then what actually happened after all the talking? Mm-hmm. How about you, Donna? Sure. Well, um, similar to to uh, Ashley's CEO, our CEO Karen Ignani um, put out a statement, and and she and I talked about you know the approach going going forward, and agreed that the approach needed to be one that was genuine, authentic, and uh, allowed for safe spaces for our, our employees to to speak about it, and that we could not. Uh, you know, simply allow the circumstances to be and pretend like it wasn't there, you know. And so we were encouraging our leaders to have sensitive conversations. We initially put out, uh, my team uh, put out some some guidelines to support them in that regard. And and I spoke to leaders and and told them that it is okay for people not to be okay right now. People are going to turn off their cameras. Um, uh, black employees are going to be frustrated and upset. And employees who are not black, who have not had similar experiences, are going to say, "I don't know what to say. I'm not sure what to do." And then you're going to have everything in between. But we need to be able to have these conversations, facilitate them, and allow people to feel what they're feeling and get on the other side side of it. And as a healthcare company that sits in in, uh, such a diverse uh, city and population, including our employee base, it was important for that reason too. So initially arming them with some tools, which of course everyone was nervous about, but making the point 
what you say and what you do doesn't have to be perfect. (laughs) It won't be, okay? We will make mistakes. Um, But if you approach it from the standpoint of you're an empathetic leader and you want to be able to make sure that your colleagues are okay, that will, for most people, be enough. No one's going to expect you to write the playbook on how to address these things because if we had one, there wouldn't have been the tragedy that we saw um, occur. Uh, So then we embarked on some programming um, for the organization. My team and I sat down and talked about how we would want to do that. And this was, you know, just within, you know, a a week or so after George George Floyd's murder, we put together a four-part series program and intentionally um, uh, put programming together that did not bring in outside consultants. Uh, we put panels together using our colleagues and did that because we felt that that was the most authentic way to address this in real time. And that's not to say that outside consultants aren't useful and outside speakers aren't useful, but for our culture, our environment, and what our employees were going through, we felt it would be better to actually just have real talk conversations with those who walk the halls, the virtual halls uh, right now of our organization. So the first panel that we put together um, was really just to talk about the George Floyd murder and how folks were feeling. And our panelists were of all ranks in the organization, all hues in the organization. Um, We really made sure that um, it was cross-functional representation And because we have clinicians, we also were able to leverage, you know, uh, our, you know, uh, head of behavioral health, our social workers, uh, nurses, as well as folks within general support uh, locations. And we had conversations initially about the videotape, like Ashley, some of our panelists had intentionally not watched it. They did not want to go through that trauma. So in that programming, we did not reshow the, 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 that video. Um, we used a video um, of Ken Fraser, the CEO of Merck, mm-hmm. where he it described what happened and also said, make no mistake, that could have been me. Just because I'm a CEO doesn't mean that I couldn't have been subjected to that and also uh, had my life um, in jeopardy as did George Floyd. And we asked for reactions and, and asked people to speak to it. And a lot of great candor came out of that. And you know, one of the things that I remember from that particular programming was that we talked about the talk that occurs in Black families with their teenage boys. Um, and many may think that that's the talk about sex or the talk about drugs but it's the talk about how to stay alive right. and just uh, get home. If you get and get home, just get home. It's the mm-hmm. talk about how, what you should do if you are stopped by the police and how to get home safely. And we, we talked about that. We talked about, you know, some of our colleagues who, um, you know, young African-American male who is very tall. And he, he, he talked about how, you know, all his life, he felt like he had to shrink who he was so that people wouldn't think he was 
intimidating. So just very real talk in, in real time. Um, we also had a, a program on unconscious bias and did exercise on unconscious bias so people could actually see, you know, you know how you have lived your life and who you share your time with and, and why is that, you know, to get people to start thinking about those things. Uh, we did a program in June uh, connected with Pride Month, um, but focused more on intersectionality and allyism. And then we did a program on uh, privilege, which was really um, a striking program, again, in terms of individuals speaking to their heart, to their experiences. We had white colleagues saying, I know that I have privilege and I now know that I've never done anything with that other than receive the benefit of that. Mm -hmm. um, we had colleagues talk about how there was, you know, still remnants of, of Jim Crow type laws in certain states that they, that they go through. And we also did our own little kind of privilege walk um, during that video. And if, if, if anyone has not seen what that looks like, there are YouTube videos about privilege walk and it's very powerful um, to observe. Uh, but we did that by asking some questions of our colleagues, like, have you ever been followed around a store? Um, have you ever been accused of, of theft when you didn't um, steal anything? Have you ever been stopped by the police for no reason? And while certainly not scientific, uh, it was um, quite the image to see that all of our African-American colleagues raised their hands to say, yes, that has happened to me. And all of our white colleagues said, no, I've never experienced that. And I can't imagine having experienced that. Um, and so it was very powerful. And, and we continue the journey. That's what we did in just the first month after George Floyd's murder. Um, and uh, we continue the journey with, with, with the library, with discussions. And currently, the DNI Council is planning on how we're going to uh, you know, be more intentional going forward. Were those sessions voluntary or was any part of what you did mandatory? Uh, how did you manage that? We did the sessions by uh, teams, um, uh, I'm forgetting the name of it, it, on live, live teams. Mm -hmm. So we did the sessions by live teams video. Um, so any one of our colleagues, uh, 4,500 employees could could watch it. It was not mandatory. It was um, it was voluntary. We taped it, all of the sessions we taped so that people could watch them if they couldn't attend. We have union employees that, you know, maybe had shifts. We have medical professionals, obviously, who needed to attend the patients. We're still here now emails from folks saying, I just got a chance to watch this and, and it, it, you know, it was very powerful. Um, so it lives in the, all of the videos live in our library for people to go back to at any point in time. Mm -hmm. Great. So, you know, I think our approach was similar. I, I will say that I'm proud of my organization in that we had an established health equity, diversity and inclusion team that had already really started some really important work. And so um, about two years ago, our um, heady council, which is an interdisciplinary council of senior leaders and executives, physicians who come together quarterly to kind of 
um, design what our DNI agenda will be and how it will be carried out and funded, had already gone through unconscious bias training. And then we rolled it out to all executives. I believe in 2019, it was mandatory. And then in the beginning of 2020, the plan was to roll it out at the director level across. And so we started that process um, that was kind of paused because of COVID, but we've now picked that up using um, video training, which is different than what we had planned in the beginning. So we had already kind of set the baseline and I shared before that I think you know unconscious bias training is so important to just start as a baseline awareness for folks that you have this bias I have this bias everybody has it right it's kind of like cells in your body everybody's got it now now that you're aware that you've got it how do you you know navigate that in an intentional way so that had been had been done and then you know once we had the George Floyd issue certainly our leader sent out a communication but then we really started thinking through some pointed efforts so we had already had a town hall on um, health equity amid COVID so we had, had talked about disparity in, uh, impact um, to, to black, black and brown people about COVID. And we actually were tracking those numbers in our community. So we knew what they looked like. And we had really started working with our clinics and not only our employee physicians, but our community partners to really see how we could target that. And we had had some programs specifically focused on what I'd say is community outreach and providing um, resources to those who can't afford to provide it. And we some of that had been thwarted by um, COVID. So what we did is kind of retooled some of those dollars and started really working on, you know, COVID testing for people who couldn't afford it. We also started working through um, what we call it was a monitoring program for those who weren't ill enough to be in the hospital. They could work with a navigator to be monitored and they call in every day. And then if they got worse, then they could then go into a situation where they were hospitalized and those the, the cost of their um, treatment was covered. And so we had already done that. And so then we also stood up several interdisciplinary panels with both physicians, associates, to really talk about racial injustice, to talk about what their experience had been both in the workplace and in life. And they were open and well attended by people all across the organization. Um, and there was kind of a series of those panels on, on various topics. The other thing we did was we stood up a racial justice book club. And our first book is How to Be an Anti-Racist, which I thought was really pretty, pretty impressive and provocative um, for healthcare. And so we are, are going through that. And it's a pretty large book club. It's facilitated by DNI professionals. And we take it one chapter at a time, digest it. We have rules of engagement. In fact, before we did the book club, we had a training on how to lead courageous racial conversations and how to engage in them in a way that preserves people's dignity and, and integrity. And I actually did a similar thing with um, the National Healthcare Diversity Council, and that was also really, really well attended by our folks. And then the other thing that we've done is stood up a interdisciplinary committee that has been committed to tackling policies that we currently have. And so we have chosen four policies to look at those policies and determine if there are things in there that really don't promote racial equity. And so we're going to dissect those policies as an interdisciplinary group and then go back to our senior leaders with a recommendation about how we might make changes to those policies. And then we're also working on what we call a decision-making framework. So as um, groups continue to promulgate and revise their policies, here are considerations that they should consider 
um, about racial equity and how they, their policies can be more racial, racially neutral, if you will. And so we've done some really cool things and I'm looking forward to see, you know, how this will continue to evolve. You know, it sounds as if both of your organizations had um, a very impactful response to the murder of George Floyd. But I've often thought in corporate America, is this a moment or a movement? And mm -hmm. so the question is, what do you see in terms of what your organizations are going to do, are doing to ensure that this momentum continues? What are your plans? What are you thinking about in terms of how do you um, make it more than just a moment in time? Yeah. So um, Ashley had mentioned that before her organist, before George Floyd's murder, her organization had already stood up some things as as did as did we and and I had already made a commitment and my CEO had already made a commitment um, to the board mm -hmm. um, that uh, diversity and inclusion and, and equity would be a part um, of our you know ongoing fa fabric um, and that uh, you know we would you know make sure that it it was just as important as as the business strategies so. Um, there was a commitment already at the top of 2020 to be more intentional about inclusive um, actions for the organization. And, you know, it was only COVID that made us, you know, kind of pivot a little bit and then pivot back. So the, there's, there's a, a plan and always a process and a commitment that we, that we decided to move forward with. The difference is though is that I, I, I think that what will come out of this is a much stronger response uh, to the employee voice on this discussion. Uh, we have had uh, coffee hours, the Diversity and Inclusion Council has had coffee hours every two weeks inviting employee base to come and talk to us about their thoughts about what's going on in the organization, what needs to be touched, what needs to be targeted, what they think, um, you know, it would would move the needle in our organization. And so we are listening very intently to them. So it is not just a top-down approach. And uh, and I think that is what will make all the difference in in making sure that it's not just a moment in time, but that it is very much a part of you know how we live and breathe as an organization, and that we're you know we're committed to it. We're we're also uh, at this point in time, you know, doing a um, a initiative on our values in general, and the behaviors that attach to it, and the accountability that attaches to it as an organization uh, to further drive high performance. And so this commitment to, to equity, you know, is certainly going to be, you know, an instrumental part of that. And so I like the fact that all of this is really kind of coming together and that it's not going to be something that just stands alone. It will yeah. be a part of our everyday uh, culture, not just on paper, but in the way we interact with each other and everything that we do from a workforce standpoint, from a workplace standpoint, and from a marketplace standpoint. Hey, I agree with that. So I will say, um, you know, we, 
we have had a commitment to diversity, so I don't think that will change. Um, we had, you know, hiring targets, we had retention targets, and we were meeting those. In fact, it was a key component of our people portion of our executive compensation. So we, it was hardwired into our strategy. You know, when they when we incentivize around it, we mean it, right? We say that all the time. But you know, I go back to the comment that I made in our last session around this is a time when your culture will tell on you. And I think we have had more than a paradigm shift for businesses. We were starting to see a paradigm shift for workers or for employees, and I think that paradigm shift is here to stay. Uh, I think that this notion that people are going to come to work in a place that doesn't value them, that does not um, invest in the things that are meaningful to them, doesn't treat them in the way that they want to be treated, doesn't reward them in a way that that's meaningful, is kind of over. And so if we are serious about this war on talent that we all say we want top talent, we want the best of the best and the brightest of the brightest, we as organizations will rise to that occasion or we will get what is left over after the, the, the best talent goes to the places where they feel that they can come and be authentic and be rewarded for that and be heard for that. And so I think more than anything, the workforce is no longer tolerant. Mm -hmm. of us placating and saying we're doing something that we're not. And there's a, a quote that I love, and it says something around the nature of moral courage has rewards that, timi that timidity could never imagine. Mm -hmm. And Billy Graham said it, and I love it, because I think that it is the moral courage of the workforce and of everyday people that are really going to hold our feet to the fire. Mm -hmm. And if we aren't doing what we say we're going to do, then they're going to tweet it, they're going to post it. They're going to talk about it on Glassdoor. And what will happen is that those people that we saw coming and flocking to our organizations to be a part of that will choose to go somewhere else. And so, you know, that is what I really see as the next real push in terms of continuing to keep our moral compass um, where it needs to be. It's hard to, to be able to say one thing and do something else. And I saw a tweet the other day where a young lady says, quit using diverse photos on your website if your board of directors doesn't match people right. are making a list and checking it twice mm -hmm. and so it's going to be harder and harder for us to say one thing and do something else mm -hmm. yeah, you you donna and ashley you both raised really good points about the fact that at both your organizations and and of course your picture of organizations across the country what you're seeing is a phenomenon where employees are driving mm -hmm. more of the culture the definition yes. of the culture at the, the companies. Absolutely. And that is part of this ongoing social justice imperative. And not only from the employees, but organizations are going to start hearing mm -hmm. it from their customers, their patients, their stakeholders, uh, other stakeholders, shareholders, the community partnerships, you know, they're going to be asked to be accountable. Uh, so this, this is a great time, like Donna said, to bake these, um, you know, concepts of diversity, equity, and inclusion in, in a way that makes it part of the regular way that we're doing something as opposed to some add-on or bolt-on type of thing. So you gave us a great idea of things that work. What were some things that didn't work? Did you, you know, did you have any or did you hear about any things that didn't work from colleagues um, in your same industry? Um, a, well, a couple of things. One, I want to uh, you know, in, in the interest of transparency, 
in, in my own organization, while I think the work that we did in reaction to George Floyd was very well received, um, and we had you know lots of um, great feedback. There were folks that you know weren't happy with how we characterized invitations and the way we stated things and wanted us to state things in a, a certain way. And so um, could we make everybody happy? Um, no. D did we make everybody happy? No. Um, but what we did do is uh, provide content that provoked thought and conversations and um, opportunity and you know a, a launching pad to hear more from the employee base and use that for the initiatives, goals, and practices that we will be doing going forward, which makes it, in my view, I think, and in the majority of our organization's view, um, the right thing to do and, and impactful, even if, if the invitation didn't state what everybody wanted us to state or the external message to the community didn't state it in the way everyone wanted us to state it. As for other organizations in terms of anything folks did do or didn't do, you know, that worked or didn't work, you know, I, I sat in on calls almost every week for a period of time with CHROs around the country and with labor and employment attorneys around the country and heard all sorts of stories about things that, you know, some of us were doing that were similar. And then, and then there were companies that weren't doing anything at all. There were some companies that felt that, that this was a political issue mm -hmm. and, and chose not to respond. And the, the despair from those human resource professionals was just profound. Um, and, you know, when Ashley says, you know, people will start walking elsewhere, right, because you're not living up to that expectation, there will be human resource professionals as well going elsewhere because they realize that they're at a company uh, that doesn't support the important work that necessarily needs to be done. Mm -hmm. um, I, I also, there were also companies who wanted to do the right thing, tried to do the right thing, but were looking terribly inconsistent by, you know, giving millions of dollars to uh, social injustice organizations and making very profound statements, but their CEOs um, or other senior leaders were caught saying and doing things that were completely inconsistent with their position. And then they had to scramble you know, to try and do something else on top of what they were doing. You know, the $1 million became $15 million. And, you know, the, the, com the commitment to, you know, uh, you know, diverse hiring became more of a, a percentage and a timeline and a this and a that. And, you know, it, it, that was, I think, a learning for me. It should be a learning for everyone that, uh, as, as Ashley stated, people are paying attention. You know, they're paying attention. And so be true to the organization that you are and don't necessarily allow the voices to force you in a direction that you aren't comfortable with or that you can't commit to or be consistent with. But also, you know, really 
recognize that people will check you and 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 make you walk the the walk you know that is equal to what you were saying so if you can't walk that walk don't say it so the internet is the ultimate accountability partner <laughs> I say that all the time. I say to my daughter, I believe it to be true. Um, and you're right. If you put it out there, you need to be able to sustain that. And so, you know, I will say that's probably what I'm proudest of our organization for is I think initially we were criticized for not moving immediately and not responding mm -hmm. immediately. Now, our CEO did send out a statement immediately, but we spent a couple of weeks thoughtfully strategizing about really what was sustainable and developing not just a kind of knee-jerk response, um, but really thinking through what would be palatable today and what would work in our organization, but not only that, how to continue that conversation in a sustainable way. And so, you know, that's one of the things maybe we had, we heard some noise from. And then, as you know, people are on different spectrums, right? There are people who are very pro-law um, enforcement and don't really feel like that you can be pro-law enforcement and pro-BLM. And so there was a lot of controversy and we got a lot of feedback from our associates about that on both ends of that spectrum. But I, I think that pausing a minute to think about the strategy longer term was a good move ultimately. We did catch backlash for, from it. Um, the other thing that I will say that I think I, I heard from colleagues, I have a good colleague who works for a large grocery chain and another colleague who works for another retail chain that indicated that really they struggled. They initially started having sessions where people could really share raw emotion and some of it turned ugly. They weren't able to, they didn't think through it in a way that, that corralled it in a way where it could be channeled for there to be something constructive or actionable to come out of it. And so that was one of those things we thought through as we kind of determined what our response would be. And then, um, you know, the other thing that I think could have backfired, it did not, because we, like Donna's group, provided talking points and even went as far as to say, these are the things probably that won't be well-received. Um, if you say it might be well-intentioned, but they may not be well-received, well right? Is that, you know, a lot of organizations did not give leaders, particularly majority leaders, tools to engage in authentic conversations. And many times people want to say something, but it's kind of like when a, a, a someone passes, like somebody's father passes, well, your dad didn't die. So you don't really know how that feels, but you want to say, I feel for you. And so a lot of organizations did not equip their folks. And so we had folks saying things that, you know, might've been well-intentioned in their head, but didn't come out that way. <laughs> In other or in, in friends organizations and that stuff became the tweet of legends you know stuff that will live on forever and so those are the things that i really saw that didn't go well from my perspective both internally and you know stories that i heard from colleagues but you know i, I think people are, are are those who are have a commitment to it are really working within their organizations to get help and then the last thing i'm gonna say about that is this um i think I really like the approach, Donna, of, of being authentic and working within your skill set in your organization to have that first conversation. But I've heard a lot of organizations say they're looking for good, credible consultants in that space. Mm 
because they recognized that they did not have the skill set inside of the organization to do anything more than that initial response. And they wanted to build a program going forward. So I've even worked with some friends that kind of curates a little short list, you know, to share with within our little circle to say, these are people we've used before. We know they're good. They fit within your price range, just so people have options. You know, as, as we wrap up um, what's been a wonderful conversation um, about the programs that you put into um, place and things to do and not to do, if you could give just one piece of advice to um, organizations that are on this diversity, equity, and inclusion journey, if you could give just one piece of advice in one minute, um, <laughs> what would it be? <laughs> Um, I, I, I would say that the journey should be an end-to-end -end strategy, not an initiative, uh, an end-to-end -end strategy that uh, can have some sustaining impact, a strong commitment mm -hmm. for the organization. And, um, and I would say that organizations, similar to what I said before, you know, you need to be credible. So don't over-promise. Uh, don't fail to walk the walk and don't do something just to check off a box. People see through that. So have an end-to-end -end strategy to support your organization in this space. Right. Ashley? First, diversity and inclusion is a business imperative. It's the right thing to do, but it makes you more money. It makes you more successful. It makes you more innovative. So it's really ill-advised not to. And then the second thing I'd say is to people of color in positions with a voice, don't leave your blackness at the door. Don't leave your blackness at the door. Mm -hmm. You're there for a reason. And certainly use your voice in a way that causes other people to follow you. That's RBG's words, not mine. <laughs> but you we'll all accept her words. Yeah. <laughs> And those are definitely, both of you gave great advice and great words to live by in this space as we try to move forward in a much more impactful way. So we'd like to really thank you, Donna and Ashley, once again, for just providing a wonderful conversation in our journey along, you know, talking about the relevant and timely issues in today's workplace. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. You've been listening to Today's Workplace with Barbara Johnson and Belinda Reed Shannon. If you like what you heard, click subscribe so you don't miss out on future updates and episodes. For more information about today's episode, check out todaysworkplace.com. That's T-O-D-A-Y-S-W-O-R-K-P-L-A-C-E dot com.